reading from the New Testament, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Join me together as we partake of the power of God in his word. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elder, elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me uh, by the plotting of the Jews. Now I kept back nothing that, w- that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit of, in, to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that cl- chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel and to the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching to the kingdom of God, you see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after, many, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, uh, I uh, will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and, and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like, like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would no 
they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. God bless the hearing of this word. Let's pray together as we come and consider God's word to us today. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your word and for the truth even that Paul spoke to those elders of the church in Ephesus that this word is able to build us up in ways that no other power in this world can do. Father, your word is able to transform our lives with supernatural power, by renewing our minds, by helping us to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, by transforming us and conforming us into the image of His glory. And so, Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray, be with us today. Help us to understand the truth of Your Word, and not just understand it, but to be convinced of it, and not just convinced, but convicted by it. Father, may it expose whatever sin lurks in our hearts. And may it excise it like a surgeon's scalpel, like the double-edged sword that it is. And Father, may you continue the work that you have begun in us. So Father, we pray today, help us not only to be hearers of your word, but to become more and more doers of your word. Conform us to the image of Jesus. May the words of my mouth... And may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see so many of you here today, and especially those who have been sick and are feeling better. And I'm glad that we can continue on together through our study of the great book of Acts. What an important study this has been, hasn't it? What an important book this is for Christians, for us, in this time that we're living in, as we look into God's Word, and as we glean from it this critically important wisdom, and as we see how the early church was formed, and how it grew, and how it was sustained, and how it was strengthened, and how it responded to all of the various trials, and difficulties, and afflictions, and pressures, and challenges, and even persecutions that it faced in the early days of the apostles, before the New Testament scriptures had even been fully written, and certainly before they had been circulated around and made available in the way that they are today. In our time, we face all of the same kinds of pressures and trials and challenges that the early church faced. And praise God that our great advantage is that the scriptures are now complete. We have everything that God has revealed to us. We have everything we need for our lives and our faith and our growth and our service to the kingdom of God. We have the divine power of the living and active Word of God to guide us through every single challenge that we face in our lives and to equip us to continue to grow in grace and in holiness and to seek the kingdom and to serve God, even in these days that are so dark, that are so evil, when, when Satan continues in this world to prowl around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour people, 
Even in this time where the rulers of our world and our own nation more and more are raging against God and His truth and people are chafing against His law and His word and suppressing the truth of God. God's word is greater. God's spirit who is in us is greater. He has overcome this world. Last week, we came to this passage here in Acts chapter 20 where Luke is recording for us how Paul was on his way back from his travels in Macedonia, heading back to Jerusalem. He hoped to be able to get there in time for Pentecost. So he decided, remember, not to stop in Ephesus for the sake of time. But when he came to Miletus, which is down to the south of Ephesus, he sent for the elders the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and they came down to Miletus to meet with Paul so that he could impart to them some really critically important wisdom and give them some crucial exhortations and admonitions as they continued to shepherd the flock, continued to to lead and care for the church up in Ephesus. And last time we saw, didn't we, that The wisdom and the exhortations that Paul gave to them weren't just for those specific men, weren't just for the leaders of the church, but by extension, all of this stuff that Paul's proclaiming to them is for the church itself, for all of the Christians who were living in Ephesus. And by extension, all of this truth is for all of the Christians who would end up receiving all of that wisdom through the Word of God where it's recorded, including us living now in the 21st century America. And so all of this wisdom that Paul is exhorting the elders of Ephesus with is for us also. Last time, we focused on verses 17 to 24, and we saw, we saw Paul pointing to his own life and to how the heart of Christ had formed his life and formed his ministry in some very specific ways that Paul was urging the Ephesian elders and Christians in general to imitate. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? He wants them to emulate him in these three ways, in being sacrificial servants first and foremost, who are passionate proclaimers of the Word of God, who don't compromise any part of the Word of God and who are, thirdly, dauntless in danger. They count the cost, they run the race with endurance, and they run it all the way to the end, no matter how tough that is. Those are the three foundational ways in which the life of Jesus Christ has to be increasingly forming our lives. The lives of His blood-bought, born-again people. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. Jesus is the one who counted the cost, who despised the shame, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross in order to glorify God and redeem us. And since it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us, that life of Christ must be defining more and more our lives and transforming us into people who no longer live for ourselves but who become servants, who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of others, and and people who are passionately devoted to the truth of the Word without compromise, willing to preach it in season and out of season, willing to say every part of it, even the unpopular parts that people don't want to hear, and even when that results in persecution or opposition for us. 
people who are willing to count the cost, run the race with endurance to the very end. Now today, we're going to keep going here in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to glean even more critical wisdom from God's Word through this speech that Paul gives to the elders there from the church in Ephesus. And we're not going to come close to finishing this chapter this morning, because this is one of those weeks where I got locked into one verse, and that's all we're going to get to. I really want to focus in on two massively important admonitions that Paul gives to these guys in verse 28, and then we'll tackle the rest next time. Now, it's important to recognize here just how urgent these words of Paul really are, because literally... He knows these are the last words that he's ever going to speak to these guys because he's never going to see them again. That's what he says himself, right? In verse 25, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, none of you are going to see my face again. This is it. He'd spent three years ministering with them. They're precious to him. They're brothers. They're true friends, right? Comrades in arms for the kingdom. And he's never going to see them again. Paul's heading for Jerusalem and he said, we saw it last time, that he knew by the Spirit's own testimony to him that as he's heading to Jerusalem, he's heading straight into the lion's den. He knew because the Holy Spirit had testified to him that what awaited him was imprisonment and affliction. And even though he didn't know exactly what course that would take him on for the rest of his life, he knew that it wouldn't take him through Ephesus again. So these are literally the last words that he's going to speak to these elders who who he'd served with for so long. Three years there, just in that city alone, because during his time there, the Holy Spirit had granted such a sweet, fruitful season of ministry and given such success in the work of the gospel there. Imagine everything that Paul had taught them in the course of three years of ministry, day in and day out. And now he knows this is the last time he's ever going to see them. He knows these are the last words they're ever going to hear from him. Imagine how careful he is in choosing his words. He's emphasizing the things that they'll need to hear the most and know the most as they press on for the kingdom in this world without Him. And so in these verses that we're looking at today, Paul's emphasis is on how these elders are to care for the church. How as leaders, as elders, they are to shepherd, that's what the word care there means, to shepherd the flock of God that is precious to God because God Himself has not only given them stewardship over this flock, but this is the flock for which Jesus shed His own blood. And so Paul wants to emphasize that to these guys. Your calling is high because these people, these eternal souls that He's called you to shepherd are precious enough to Him that He sent His own Son to shed His blood and die for them. So here's what you need to know in order to care properly for the sheep of God. And His emphasis is summed up there in verse 28 where He says these words. And these are the two foundational things we'll focus on today. He says to these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. 
number one, and number two, to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, the church that belongs to God, which He obtained with His own blood. And it's those two urgent admonitions that I want to spend all our time on together today because they're foundational to everything else and so critically important to the Christian life. And the first one is this, pay careful attention to yourselves. And the second one, right on the heels, and also to the flock. Pay careful attention to the flock. Pay careful attention to one another, is what Paul is saying. And again, even though he's specifically addressing the leaders of the church at Ephesus and talking specifically about how they oversee and shepherd the flock of the church as its leaders, these admonitions, it should go without saying, have massive significance and relevance to all of us in Christ's church as the sheep who are under the care of the great shepherd. And that's how we're going to take them today as admonitions for us. So the first thing that he says there in verse 28, is this imperative exhortation to them to pay careful attention to themselves. And that's what, I want to hear that for me. That's why I got hung up on this verse this week. I couldn't get past this, this verse, and it was hard to get past that one command where God says, Steve, pay careful attention to yourself first. Be deeply concerned about, that's what this word means, be in a high state of alertness about yourself. And I want all of us to have that focus for us. It's easy for us to say, I'm concerned about this other person. And God says, good, I want you to be concerned about one another, but first, you cannot possibly care for another person until you've been mindful of yourself. So take care of yourself. Be alert about your own life, your own heart, your own soul. That's that's what this word means. Be on high alert about what's going on inside of you. Now this word, to, to take care of, to take heed of, to pay careful attention to, it's a word that Jesus used a lot of times all throughout the Gospels. And usually when Jesus used it, he used it in the sense of a warning. And and so we translate it in the Gospels where Jesus uses the same Greek word. We translate it with the word beware. Jesus is warning his disciples often about things that can hinder their lives and their pursuit of holiness and their ministries. Beware of false prophets. It's the same word here. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware lest your hearts be weighed down with sin and dissipation and the cares of this life. Beware of the seductiveness of sin in your own hearts, Jesus is saying. And then Paul also, apart from using this word here in Acts 20, uses it several times, a lot of times, in his letters to Titus and to Timothy, who are, who are pastors in his stead, right? Paul's Paul's saying, I've run the course. I've I've been ministering as a pastor for 30 years, and I'm about to die. So now you guys are going to have to take up the, the mantle in my stead and be prepared to die for the ministry of the gospel also. And as you do, he uses this word. Pay attention. And, and often in Titus and Timothy, we translate the word devote. So... 
Jesus is saying as a warning, beware of certain things. And Paul is saying it as an admonition, devote yourself to certain things. To the care of the flock, to the scriptures, to holiness as a pursuit in your life. And so you get the idea, right? This, this word that here is translated, pay careful attention, has both positive and negative connotations to it, right? We have to watch out for certain things that are dangerous to us, and we have to be devoted to certain things that our spiritual lives and our perseverance absolutely depend on. Chiefly, God's Word. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. Because the Christian life that we all live, spiritual growth and successfully being able to battle sin and face temptation and not yield to it and maturing and thriving in knowledge and in holiness, none of that happens automatically, right? You don't just sit around eating bonbons, watching TV all day long and boom, all of a sudden you're holy. That's not how it works. It works in your spiritual life in the same kind of way that it works in your physical life. The health of the physical body requires paying attention to important things like what we eat and what we don't eat and what we do and what we don't do. And so in the same way, the spiritual life depends on paying careful attention to important things. Think about your physical body. A group of hikers not too long ago were hiking through the forest and they saw some wild mushrooms growing and they weren't paying attention. They picked those mushrooms and they ate them with their salads and they all ended up in the hospital having destroyed their livers because the wild mushrooms were toxic and they didn't realize that and they weren't careful. They hadn't paid attention. My doctor, about 10 years ago, knowing my family history and that coronary artery disease and diabetes and all kinds of other metabolic junk runs in my family, my doctor admonished me to start paying attention about what I eat and what I don't eat and what I do and what I don't do. Because if I don't do that, if I just merrily go along life eating whatever I feel like eating and and stuffing as much of it down my gullet as I feel like doing, then it will put my physical health at risk. And it did. I had to start paying attention. Now a lot of people do this with their physical lives, with their bodies. They pay close attention to their physical lives. They're fastidious about what they eat, about their diet, about how many ounces of water they drink every single day, about how much they exercise, about how many calories go in, about how much sun they get exposed to. All kinds of care being taken in a good way, praise God, for their physical health as they steward the bodies God's given them. A lot of people are meticulous about their bodies, but here's the thing, very often people pay very little attention to their souls, which is more important. People pay little attention to what kind of influences their minds and their hearts are being exposed to, to how much spiritual food and drink they're regularly consuming, to whether or not... The, the teaching and the messages that they're tuning into are actually biblical truth or maybe subtle, deceptive, false teachings 
and the temptations of the world and the schemes of the devil. People aren't paying attention to how the things and the circumstances and the, and, and, and the times that they're living in make them vulnerable and susceptible to temptation and to yielding to the desires of their flesh and how ungodly attitudes and thoughts may be flourishing in their hearts under the surface and going unchecked, festering and spreading like, like mold inside of their souls in the hidden recesses of their minds and their hearts. Hebrews chapter 2, using the same exact word that Paul uses here in verse 28 of Acts 20, when he says, pay careful attention to yourselves, Hebrews chapter 2 uses the same word and says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. And listen, that's how it works, right? Drifting is how it works in this world. It's how it works physically, if we're not paying attention, and it's how it works spiritually even more so. If I'm not paying close attention to what's going into my body, if I'm not choosing food carefully in general, paying attention to quantity, if I'm just eating whatever tastes good, whatever I'm craving, whatever comfort food I want and however much of it I want, when I'm not paying close attention, my, my weight starts to drift. Anybody else have that problem? I blame the scale, right? I go and I stand and I say, this stupid scale is broken. Because I'm drifting, inexorably drifting. And, and when that starts to happen, all kinds of other aspects of my physical health start to drift right along with it. Listen, the same thing is true about our spiritual health. That's what Hebrews is warning about. And the ramifications of that are far more serious than what's going on with your body. And so the need to pay attention to your spiritual health is far more important even than than your physical health. Human life, both physically and spiritually, human life is not like sitting in a boat in the middle of a perfectly calm lake with absolutely zero current and absolutely zero wind, so that as you sit there doing nothing, the natural inclination of the boat is just to sit still and not move out of dead center in that lake. That's not how life is, right? Not in this fallen, corrupted, decaying world. It's not a still lake. It is a rushing river that we're in the middle of. There are all kinds of currents pulling at us. There are all kinds of winds blowing us downstream. And downstream is death. Downstream is destruction. And if you're not paying careful attention, you are going to drift. And the drift will be perilous. So Paul says, pay careful attention to yourself. And Hebrews 2 says, pay careful attention to what you've heard. And it means to the word that has been proclaimed to you, to scripture. And those two things, paying attention to yourself and paying attention to the word, absolutely go together. Because the word of God is packed full of all of the divine wisdom and truth that God has revealed for us to know him and for us to know ourselves. It's able, Hebrews 4 says, it's able to discern 
the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts on the inside. And if you really want to be serious about your spiritual health and about avoiding temptation and about putting sin to death and about growing in grace and about running with endurance, then you've got to be serious about what's going on in the inside, just like with your physical body, right? It's one thing to put on baggy clothes that cover up how unhealthy you are and makeup and, and all that, but what, you really, what we really want to be doing is, 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 is being mindful about what's going on on the inside of our bodies, right? So it is with your spiritual life. It's not just what's happening on the outside. The critical stuff is what's happening on the inside. In those places of our minds, of our hearts, where other people can't see what's going on and where only the all-knowing God can see, that's what's important. And His living, active Word, full of truth about what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is wise, what is foolish, when it is abiding in us, it's able to expose on the inside, all of the foolishness, all of the sinfulness, all of the pride, all of the fleshliness, all of the ungodliness, all of the worldliness that's lingering in there and lurking in our thoughts and in our attitudes so that we can start to know it all and confess it all, repent of it all, put it all to death at the root and not just in its outward manifestation. Jesus wasn't impressed with people who were able to do that, right? They, they ignored the root, but they took care of the outward manifestation. They made the outside of the cup look nice and pretty, but inside it was full of rot and decay. Not impressed, right? Jesus wants our hearts to be clean. Jesus wants our thoughts to be pure. Jesus wants our attitudes to be godly and flourishing with the fruit of the Spirit. He wants all of that to be taking root on the inside so that attitudes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, no matter what's going on, that's what's flourishing in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, and then from those inward spiritual dispositions, they're producing godliness on the outside, no, no matter what kinds of trials and afflictions we're experiencing. And only the Word of God can do that. And if we're not regularly and constantly abiding in that Word and letting it abide in us richly, then it's not going to be doing that, and we're going to be drifting. Our attitudes, our thoughts, our lives will be subject to the winds of wickedness and deception and ungodliness in this world and to the currents of sinful pride and fleshly temptations in our own hearts, in our own flesh, and to the schemes and the lies and the tricks and the deceptions of the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And he also poses like an angel of light, doesn't he? Constantly deceiving us with the ungodly foolishness and destructive falsehood that our flesh craves. And before we know it, and often without even knowing it, we'll be drifting if we're not paying attention. And the more you start to drift, the faster you start to go. 
And the further you go, the closer you get to the falls and, and disaster that the devil wants to cultivate. So Paul's saying you've got to pay attention. You've got to be regularly diagnosing yourself with the standard of God's Word. And I'll tell you this, the devil who's prowling around knows when we're not doing that. He knows when we're not paying attention. He knows when we haven't been careful. He knows when we're distracted. We get distracted maybe with uh, hard trials that we're experiencing. And, And because we're so bogged down and burdened by the trials, we're not paying attention and we're not abiding in God's Word. We're not in prayer. We're not before the throne of grace. We're we're kind of trying to just deal with stuff in our own strength. The devil knows it. Or maybe it's during the times where, where everything's really pleasant and sweet in our lives. Everything's going really great. So we're kind of sitting on our laurels. We get complacent. Devil knows it. Or we get distracted by some kind of temptation. Or we get distracted by someone else's sin and what they've done to us. And we're so fixated on what they did and, and how they made us feel that we're not paying attention to ourselves. The devil knows it. He knows about all those kinds of times in our lives when we're not paying attention, when our focus isn't on God's Word, when our guard is down, and when we're vulnerable. And that is when He strikes. And He does it through our desires. Isn't that what James says in James chapter 4? You want to know why you've got problems between you? Why there's fights? Why there's quarrels? It's because of your desires. It's because you're not paying attention to how your sinful desires and your greed and your pride are causing you to drift. So you want something and you don't have it and you're upset about it and that causes quarrels, that causes fights. Sometimes it even causes people to kill each other. The devil knows how to take advantage of you in those times and exploit your sinful desires and make you drift towards disaster. He knows when the things of this world are making you feel anxious and that anxiety is like screaming in your mind and in your soul and you're distracted by it and you're vulnerable. He knows how to take advantage of you during these times. I I can feel that literally so often. Between my own flesh, the sin that remains in me and the devil's scheming, there are days when I've let my guard down. When I just feel like I, I'm self-focused instead of focused on God and His Word. I've, I've gotten distracted. I've become complacent. And then, bam! It's like the devil came and went, ha and he stuck a big crank in me and he's just doing this. Watch me wind Steve up. With all kinds of fleshly attitudes, selfish attitudes, prideful attitudes, self-righteous attitudes. Unloving attitudes, anxious thoughts that give way to irritability, bitterness, anger. And and then that all starts pushing itself out from the inside in words and actions. And then my godly wife, who loves me so much, says to me, you need to get into the Word. And she says, we need to pray. Because in my strength, 
in my own understanding, there is absolutely nothing I can do to stop that drift. I need a strength that is not my own. And the wisdom of God's living word and the indwelling power of God, the Holy Spirit, is all that is able to stop that drift and not only stop it, but send me flying back upstream towards holiness and the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest. And see that, when my wife says to me, we need to get in the Word and we need to pray, that plays right into the second admonition, right, that Paul gives to these elders of the Ephesian church, which is that the elders of the church, they mustn't only be paying careful attention to themselves, they also have to be paying careful attention to the flock, to the church also, and all of the brothers and sisters of Christ in the church. Because the Christian life, the life of, of running the race with endurance, and putting sin to death, and growing in holiness, and seeking and serving the kingdom of God, none of that can be done alone. We absolutely need each other. That's how God designed it. God's Word is abundantly clear about this, right? The church of Jesus Christ is the body of Jesus Christ, composed of many different members who all have different gifts and are called to different ministries. And none of the parts of the body can say to any of the other parts, I have no need of you. In my flesh, sometimes my wife says, we need to get in the Word. And I say, I don't need you. Leave me alone. And Satan's like, yeah, I got him. You can't do it alone. Paul makes that point so clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are no lone ranger Christians. If you think you can handle it alone and do it alone, that's because the devil is whispering in your ear and your sinful flesh is saying amen to him. There are none of us who are capable of running the race with endurance in this world full of ungodliness and temptation where the devil is out there prowling and scheming, and where our own sin that, that remains in our flesh so easily entangles us and trips us up. We need one another. That's why in the New Testament, God uses the term one another all over the place. So many times, right? Over a hundred times. Accept one another. Be at peace with one another. Gently and patiently tolerate one another. Be kind to one another. Be with one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Consider one another as more important than yourself. Be humble towards one another. Don't judge one another. Speak truth to one another. Don't be judges of one another, but encourage one another. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. On and on and on, right? God reveals we are not supposed to, and we cannot possibly live this life as His people in this world alone. Any aspect of it. Any part of it. We absolutely need one another. We have to be there for one another. We have to care for one another. We have to help one another. And we need to do it in the, in the way that God does it for us. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance, isn't it? Grace as fellow sinners 
who have been saved by grace is how we need to help one another with love, joy, peace, patience, all the rest, right? Flowing from us as we've been keeping careful watch over ourselves so that God's wisdom and grace and love can flow from us into the lives of one another. That's how it works. Because trying to help someone else in our own strength, if we're not paying careful attention to ourselves, in our own wisdom instead of in God's strength and wisdom, can accomplish absolutely nothing. Except usually making things worse, like trying to put out a fire with a can of gas. So Paul says, keep watch over yourselves as you, and so that you can effectively keep watch over the rest of the sheep and help one another. And saying, pay careful attention to one another, this isn't some open invitation for Christians to be going around nosing into other people's business and affairs and looking for, I'm sure there's some, I can't see it, but I know there's sin and I'm going to find it, right? (laughs) If anyone knows what that legalistic, hypocritical tendency of self-righteous Phariseeism looks like, it's Paul because he used to be a Pharisee. Right? They strained at gnats, they picked people apart for every little thing, they went looking for sin where it wasn't readily apparent, they were, they were sanctimoniously and hypocritically suspicious of everyone. If anyone knew the burden of that ungracious, self-righteous hypocrisy and legalism, it was Paul. Because that's who he was before he was saved by grace and forgiven for all of his own sin. And you'll remember that at the end of his ministry, in in 1 Timothy, one of the last letters that he wrote after 30 years of ministry, knowing that he's about to die, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. All throughout his ministry, All throughout his writings in the New Testament scriptures, the the radical transformation of Paul's life away from the arrogant, prideful, hypocritical, pharisaical spirit that used to define him, it's evidenced by the fact that as much as he's concerned about sin in the lives of Christians, and he is, but the sin he's most concerned about is always his own. Right? Paul says, look, I... I've been everywhere. I've seen, I've met a lot of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And the sin that I'm most concerned about, the sin that bothers me the most is not your sin, but my sin. You can't help one another unless you can say that with Paul. I tell you what, a lot of problems get solved a lot quicker. A lot of divisions get mended. A lot of relationships get repaired when Christians are more concerned about their own sin than with the sin of other people. Forgiveness comes faster. Reconciliation is achieved much more smoothly when people whose own sin deserved the full brunt of God's holy wrath for all of eternity, but who have been freely forgiven and lavished with grace and undeserved love can then lavish that grace and love on one another. 
So that's exactly why Paul says what he says here in verse 28 in the order that he says it. First, pay careful attention to yourselves so that you can pay careful attention to one another with the fruit of the Spirit, with the grace of Christ, with the love of God flowing from you. Because no one can possibly help other people deal with their own sin and avoid all the schemes of the devil and all the pitfalls of of the Christian life in this world. No one can possibly help anybody else grow in grace and run with endurance unless they're paying close attention to themselves first. And of course, a huge part of that is making sure that the same kindness that led us to repentance is what we're expressing towards others who need to come to repentance. Back to the example of my own life. When I have become distracted, I haven't been keeping close, careful watch over my own thoughts and and the intentions of my own heart. I've started to drift. I've become vulnerable. Satan then throws this curveball at me. Some situation, some circumstance. And I start getting all cranked up with anxiety, with a self-focused Attitude, instead of being full of the wisdom of God and the fruit of the Spirit, my wife could see that. She can sense it. And she could do one or two, she could start yelling at me, what is wrong with you, you idiot? And dealing with my sin sinfully, pouring gas all over the fire. Or she could and does apply Biblical wisdom instead, like for instance from Galatians 6 verse 1, right? When she lovingly addresses my stuff in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul says there in Galatians 6 1. She's being gentle in a way that's not designed to punish, not designed to condemn, it's designed to restore and pour the clear water of love and patience and grace all from God out and say, you know what, let's dive into the pure water of His Word together. (laughs) I'll bear this burden with you if you're willing to draw near to the throne of grace together with me. And when that happens in the humility and the kindness of Christ and armed with all the wisdom of God and the fruit of the Spirit, when she comes alongside to help me, instead of going, you're a mess, I'm, I'm out, I don't want to deal with you, or blasting me with the anger of man, which James says cannot possibly accomplish the righteousness of God, when she does it the way she does it, and when I respond to it in love to her and faith in God with her, then the peace of God overcomes all of the fleshly anxiety and brings the God-given peace that leads to righteousness. Listen, isn't that exactly what Paul promises will happen in Philippians chapter 4? Which, which, remember, he wrote while he was sitting in prison, suffering. He had not been treated well. He was not having a good day. He had been treated unjustly and unfairly. He's in a place where he could very easily be distracted and become complacent and become self-focused and become tempted not to pay close attention to his heart. He's in a place where he could very easily be vulnerable 
to the sinful temptations of his flesh and all of the devil's schemes to trip him up in his vulnerability. But he pays careful attention to himself and he says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, he says this, he says, the Lord is at hand. In other words, yeah, this is hard and I'm struggling, but you know what? God is here. God is literally here at hand. And I am not doing this without Him. That's what it means to pay careful attention. I'm not doing this on my own. I'm not doing this without God who is at hand. See, sometimes when we're vulnerable, when we're not paying careful attention to ourselves, the chief way that our flesh and the devil trip us up is to convince us not to say that. To convince us not to say I'm not doing this without Him. To convince us in our sinful foolishness that the best way to deal with whatever it is we're going through is is to go with our feelings instead of with the wisdom of God. And so we don't submit ourselves to His Word. We don't pray. We don't expose our inner selves to the double-edged sword of His Word and take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and, and pray to our Father in our darkest moments, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me through this dark trial in the way that is everlasting. And so, when we don't do that, we keep on drifting faster and further towards disaster. But when we do recognize that even in the darkest of trials and the hardest of times and the greatest of temptations, the Lord is at hand. He's there and so we turn to Him and submit our feelings to His wisdom and truth and righteousness. Then Paul says there in Philippians 4, here's what happens. Even in the anxious circumstances and amid anxious feelings which make us vulnerable to temptation and to sin, we can avoid being Anxious. Do you know this distinction between feeling anxiety and being anxious as something that we do? Do you know this distinction? It's like this. Here's an illustration of it. It's like having a screaming toddler in your car while you're driving down the freeway at 70 miles an hour. What do you do? The kid is screeching at the top of his lungs. And it's really distracting. And you're vulnerable, right? To distraction, to bad judgment, to to bad driving, to not paying attention. You might need to pull over. And if you keep driving, you have got to be able to push past all the distraction of the screaming toddler and keep focused on the road and and on, on driving safely and on avoiding a wreck and disaster, right? And here's the thing, the absolute last thing that you would ever, 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 ever want to do if you're driving down the road and there's an unruly child screaming in your car, the absolute last thing you want to do is put the child behind the wheel. Right? The answer is not to say to the screaming child who's distracting you and making it difficult to drive, well, you drive. We never ever do that, right? But see, here's the thing. That is exactly what being anxious is. 
feeling anxieties, having the circumstances of life and, and the weakness of our flesh screaming at us. And how often do we give it the wheel? You, you take charge now. I'm going to follow you where you, you define the direction that we go with this thing. <laughs> it's what we can and so often do if we're not paying careful attention to our souls. Feeling anxious is when the hard, fearful situations, hurtful circumstances, big temptations are happening. Our souls are noisy with anxiety. Being anxious is giving it the wheel, letting it control us. And every time that we do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive us towards disaster, towards temptation, towards sin, more and more and more. And Paul says in Philippians, don't do that. I know you feel anxiety, but don't give it the wheel. Don't be anxious. You know how? You know why? Because the Lord is at hand. He can drive. Call His word to mind in the anxious times. Turn to Him in prayer in the anxious times. And here's what happens when you do, right? You know this, Galatians 4, verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. And supplication with thanksgiving that the Lord Himself is at hand and with you, and, and that He has all of the divine resources of His power and grace to give to you. With all of that at hand, let your requests be made known to God. God can, and you know what it sounds like? In the moments when you're weak and vulnerable and anxious and tempted, and the devil is cranking up your fleshly impulses. And you don't say, I pray. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray in those moments. It's okay. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like this. It sounds like, help, God. Help. Give me wisdom. Give me grace. And then what? Here's the promise. When you do that, the peace of God. And the little of there in that phrase, the peace of God, the little of there means the peace that comes from God. The peace that God alone can supernaturally give. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It's going to blow your mind. It's going to transcend your expectations. It's going to put all your doubts to shame. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will Promise, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we'll stop drifting and hurtling down river in our foolishness and fleshliness driven by our own sinful impulses and anxious thoughts. And instead, the peace of God will stay us. And then the wisdom and the truth of God will begin to drive us ahead, back up river. And even if the temptations or the trials or the hard circumstances themselves don't go away, right? Paul didn't, Paul didn't say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray with thanksgiving and the peace of God's going to guard my heart and then I'm going to be out of prison. No, he had to stay in prison. The suffering didn't stop. But the fruit of the Spirit took over for the anxiety and the fleshliness and grew out of that peace of God in response to those hard things. And, and then God will marvelously work in us and through us for our good and to be able to bless one another, all for the sake of His glory. And again, none of it, none of it happens. None of it can happen alone. 
in isolation from one another. It happens as the life of Christ and the wisdom of Christ and the word of Christ are flowing into our lives and then from our lives into the lives of one another. And so, two of the most important exhortations and admonitions that Paul could think to give the elders in Ephesus, knowing that he'd never ever see them again, knowing that he wouldn't be there himself to help them, knowing all of the dangers and perils and pitfalls and pressures of the world and the flesh and the devil that they were going to encounter, and knowing all of the great redeeming, sanctifying, life-transforming, world-overcoming power of the risen Jesus Christ, and of His living and active Word, and of the Holy Spirit, knowing all of that, Paul urgently says to them and says to us, pay careful attention first to yourself and then to one another. Look out for one another. Be there in all of the love and the grace and the wisdom and the power of Christ for one another. Because the devil prowls this world. And he would love nothing more than to rip us to shreds. But John says, 1 John 4, we are the children of God. And if the devil wants to rip us to shreds, our Father won't let him. He is at hand and he has overcome this world and he is eternally greater than the devil who is in this world. And he's with us always, even to the end of the age and will never leave us or forsake us. Amen? We got to stop here for this week because if we keep going, we'll be here all day. We'll continue on next Lord's Day. Today, let's, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, would you convict us by this word? to keep careful watch over ourselves, to be before your throne of grace, to be praying unceasingly, to be full constantly and mindful always of your word and your truth and your wisdom, and to be seeing all of the ways in which our hearts tend to drift away from your wisdom and towards the impulses of our flesh, and and to see all of the ways in which the devil is scheming against us, and to know that if we resist him, he will flee from us, because you promised that. Father, give us grace, give us strength, give us confidence to run with endurance and not get tripped up by the sin that so easily entangles us. Father, help us to manifest your glory in our own hearts and in the lives of one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your bulletins. Turn to page 11. And we're going to sing, Yet Not I, because once again, there's no way we do this on our own. There's no way we do this without the help of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So stand together and let's sing.